had a bulletin. I don't know what I did with it. Um, there is the Ladies Operation Christmas Child uh, Sewing Day that is on Friday, this Friday, at starting at 9 o'clock. So maybe I put it in my pocket. I don't know. So it's somewhere around here. Here it is. So um, at 9 o'clock, ladies, and if you got any questions, Tr- Teresa Romero is here. And, uh, or you can call her in the morning. She'll be in the office from 8 to noon. So all the information is there. And uh, have a great day of sewing for that wonderful ministry. Also, guys, uh, men's prayer at 7 o'clock. Um, that is taking place um, on Saturday morning. Come join us for men's prayer. And then men's breakfast at 8 o'clock. And that will be over at Golden Corral just right down the street on 23rd Avenue. I let the kids know as they're going up at parents so you know. Uh, middle and high school youth will be going bowling on Saturday. The first at 1 o'clock, Highland Park Lanes. Don't bring them here. Uh, bring them over to the, um, to the bowling alley over there on 59th Avenue. $8 for two games. And then uh, in shoe rentals. And then if they want to get some snacks, um, they can use their um, allowance money, right? So for that. Single Bible study, March 1st, 5 o'clock here at the church as well. The book of James. And um, other things that are there in your bulletin, take a look at it. On Sunday, we're going to be finishing 2 Thessalonians. Uh, it's been a wonderful, wonderful study looking at First and Second Thessalonians. Chapter 3 is a wonderful chapter as Paul finishes his letter to them. Um, so uh, invite somebody out, 8.30 and 10.30. And then after 2 Thessalonians, we're going to do a study in the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians is a really important book for us to understand as Christians It's the first epistle that Paul wrote in the New Testament that we have recorded in the New Testament. It's called the early epistle. He wrote it probably right after his first missionary journey. And uh, we're going to look at how Paul is going to establish them in truth once again concerning the whole doctrine of justification and their salvation. And and, uh, so it's really important for us to understand um, the truth that Paul is writing. It's very similar to the book of Romans as he establishes the doctrine of justification as well in the book of Romans because there will always be somebody that will come along and say you're not a Christian unless you do this all right so it can throw a lot of Christians for a loop you what do you mean I'm not a Christian unless I worship on this day or do this act and I want you to remember something as we go into the book of Galatians what we're going to learn and be established in once again is that it's not based on what we do our salvation it's based on what he did on the cross of Calvary Now, we get to serve him. We walk in holiness. That's his desire. But our justification is based on faith and trust in him alone. So we're going to be looking at that very important study for us that I hope that is very beneficial. It's a wonderful time to invite somebody out to Calvary Chapel at that time as well uh, that is wondering about salvation and and heaven and all, you know, have a relationship with Jesus. And any time is good to invite them out, but uh, particularly as we get into the book of Galatians so they can have clear understanding. Because I'll tell you what, probably you know this talking to a lot of people. If you were to ask them, and I think that even if you stand outside some churches, and I'm just putting churches in, in as a you know, whatever, whoever calls himself a church, that if you were to ask the people coming out, if God was to let you in heaven, what is your answer? And I talked to somebody just recently um, that I asked them that, and they said, well, I grew up in the church, and I was baptized in the church, and I gave to the church. They're going down this list of why they think that they should uh, deserve to be in heaven or earn heaven, and they didn't understand the gospel message at all and been in a church all of their lives. 
So we want to be established in that truth for ourselves and then for you to be able to minister to others as well, the truth of the good news of the gospel, the wonderful grace of Jesus Christ. And, and that's what we're going to be looking at in the book of Galatians. Chapter 7 is where we're going to be tonight in the Old Testament in the book of Ezra. Lord, we come tonight. Thank you for this wonderful time of worship and all who have come out tonight. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless our study. And Lord, not just looking at a historical account, we are, but Lord, we want to make application. We want to glean from your word. We want to see your faithfulness and goodness and how you desire to work in our lives as well. Help us to be attentive because we come here and perhaps tired and had a long day and hungry or whatever it may be. So help us to keep our ears open and our hearts soft before you right now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In Ezra chapter 7, as we go into it, now remember that Ezra, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, those three books of the Old Testament, um, take place after the 70 years of captivity that Judah was under the Babylonian captivity. And so as Ezra began, we saw that when the 70 years of captivity was over, first of all, Babylon was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. We read about that in Daniel chapter 5. We also know that in the first year that Cyrus was the king, that he made a decree that the Jews could return back to their homeland, to Judah, to Jerusalem. And the decree also said that they could rebuild the temple. So Zerubbabel, who was the civil leader, and Joshua, who was the high priest, they would leave uh, Babylon. They would uh, make that difficult journey about 900 miles to Judah, to Jerusalem. It was a difficult travel. The city lay in rubble. The temple had been destroyed that Solomon built. So they come back, and the first thing that they do is they build the altar. Um, there where the old altar was that Solomon had built. They, they uh, made that altar so they could do the sacrifices and, and perform the burnt offerings in the morning and in the evening. And then they laid the foundation of the temple. And as we discussed last week, that uh, that work would stop for about 15 years, uh, the work of the temple. And what happened during that time was as the people came back, they were being discouraged and troubled uh, by those who came against them and against the work of the Lord. So they were dealing with that. But also we saw, according to the prophet Haggai, because during this time that they came back in that first wave of return, there was Haggai, there was Zechariah that was on the scene, and they were ministering to the people. And we discussed last week how it was Zechariah. He was the one that was the encourager. Hey, Zerubbabel, the hands that, that laid the foundation are going to be the hands that finished it. And it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel, the temple is going to be built. And he had encouraging words for Joshua as well in the visions that he had had. So Zechariah was an encourager. Haggai was an exhorter. And he was exhorting the people, you need to get back to doing the work of the Lord. Get back to building the temple and that's a priority and you've turned inwardly and you're only concerned about building your panel houses as Haggai chapter 1 verse 4 tells us. So the people would then begin to do the work and, and they would finish the temple in about 515 B.C. That would begin the second temple period. And even though the temple was smaller than Solomon's temple, it wasn't grand, it wasn't overlaid with gold like what Solomon did, 
but the Lord honored it, and the Lord blessed it, and, and the Lord's presence would be in that temple, and that temple would stand all the way to the time of Jesus, and then they expanded the temple. It was known as the Rubbable's Temple, and then later on as Herod's Temple, as Herod the Great would expand the Temple Mount, and he would make the Second Temple a magnificent building. But I want to remind us of something. As we saw in the book of Ezra, that it was the older men that wept because uh, they remember Solomon's temple and the glory of Solomon's temple. And here the foundation of that temple had been laid. It was going to be a simple building. But here's the thing. As I mentioned to you, God honored that second temple. And sometimes in our lives, maybe you personally, that we can think, you know, Lord, what I do, my ministry that you've called me to, the opportunities that you've given to me, it isn't as grand as maybe perhaps that person, what they're doing. We can look at somebody like uh, the late Pastor Chuck Smith or, uh, or, you know, we can look at Greg Glory's ministry or somebody else and we think, now that's a grand ministry. That's so glorious what it is that they're doing. You must be so pleased with them. I'm sure that the Lord is pleased with those that we see that, that have large ministries or, you know, that their names are known throughout the Christian, you know, world and, and um, as God is using them. But here's the thing. Whatever God is doing in your life and whatever ministry that he's given to you, he honors that as well. And it's just as important to him. And his glory can be manifested through the work that you are doing. So even though it was a smaller temple, you know, God honored it and, and God was pleased with it and he's pleased with you. And whatever it is that God is doing in your life and with your life. And I know that I need to constantly remind myself of that in, in the ministry that God's given to me because I can begin to look at others and think, well, Lord, how come not as big or not as well known or, or whatever it might be? And the Lord is saying that, you know what, what I've given to you and as you are faithful to that, and as you're walking in what I have you to do and are committed to it, I'm just as pleased as whatever I might have for somebody else. So may we remember that. So here is the people coming back in, in difficult circumstances. They build the temple, as we saw, and, and we saw they dedicated the temple in chapter 6. And they're going through difficult times, and, and even though that they're going through the difficult times, they continue to do the work of the Lord. So the first wave of return happened under Zerubbabel and Joshua. And now in chapter 7, we're going to see the second wave of return that comes about 80 years after Zerubbabel had come back with about 50,000 people and Joshua. We see that this second wave of return is going to be led by Ezra. Let's begin to look at that in chapter 7 of the book of Ezra. In verse 1 we do read, Now after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Zeraiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, and you can go down to verse 5, here is this genealogy that is given, all those names, but in verse 5 you see that he's the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. So between chapter 6, when the temple was built and completed and dedicated and they celebrated the Passover and chapter 7 um, about 60 years have passed and so now with Ezra getting ready to come back with another group of people not as big as the first wave of return but it's about 457 BC we're introduced to, to Ezra 
Also, just a quick footnote that in between chapter 6 and 7, you can put in your notes that that's where the book of Esther takes place. And we'll get to the book of Esther later on um, in the spring when we uh, finish the book of Nehemiah. But the story of Esther is a very wonderful story. So in between chapter 6 and 7 here, we know that Xerxes, that he was the king, that's the king that would marry Esther, and then after his death was Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes here is going to give a couple of very important commands that help the Jews be established in the land once again. One of those commands and decrees that he makes, we will see in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 2. But for now, we know that it is Ezra, uh, and he uh, is introduced to us as uh, the genealogy is given to us that goes all the way back to Aaron in verse 5. And what that does is it establishes his right to be priest. Now, you remember from the, the Old Testament book of, of Leviticus, that the priests were from the direct descendants of Aaron. The tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe, and every priest was a Levite, but not every Levite was a priest, all right? Only the direct descendants of Aaron. Remember Aaron, the brother of Moses? And there are other families of the Levites that would assist the priests in the work of the ministry there at the tabernacle and then in the temple, in the first temple period. But genealogy was very, very important back in ancient Israel. It still is today. And you might recall that in chapter 2 of Ezra, some of the priests didn't have their genealogy because they couldn't prove that they were from the line of Aaron because when Babylon came in, they destroyed some of those records or some of those records were lost, so they couldn't serve in the temple. So here is Ezra. He establishes his right to be a priest during this time and coming from the line of Aaron. And we read in verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Now, Ezra was not only a priest, but he was a scribe. Now, what was a scribe? A scribe was, first of all, an expert in the law of Moses, the word of God. He came up from Babylon, and there... Um, you know, he uh, was, uh, you know, uh, th from Babylon. He had been there and remained there after the Jews had begun to come in. But during that Babylonian captivity, remember that um, for the first time since they came into the promised land, the Jews were out of the land, um, even dispersed under the uh, captivity of Assyria by the house of Israel in 722 B.C., and in the time of the first temple period, when they were in the land, it was a lot easier or fairly easy for the Jews to be able to come to Jerusalem, to be able to come there, to, to be able to give sacrifice, uh, to be able to travel there for the feast, the major feast that they would celebrate. But now when they were out of the land, particularly when Babylon came in and destroyed the first temple, there was no temple. No more sacrifices. So during that time of the Babylonian captivity, the synagogue worship was established. And when you go to the Gospels, sometimes Christians that uh, are new to the Word of God, they'll, they'll read the word synagogue, and then they'll also read about the temple, 
and they'll get a little bit confused. Again, the temple here, Zerubbabel's temple being built, uh, finished in 515 B.C., and that temple would stand till 70 A.D., after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But during that time, as they came back, they were practicing synagogue worship. And the difference between the temple worship and the synagogue worship is very significant because the temple, again, located in Jerusalem, that's where they would still bring the sacrifices. They would still come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacle, those major feasts. So all that was done in Jerusalem. And um, the synagogue was established kind of as a place of worship, kind of like we, we do. It's, it's like a church. So when you read in the Gospels that Jesus, he would go to Jerusalem to the temple. That's where it stood. He would go there for the feast. But also in Capernaum, when he was in Nazareth, it says that he went to the synagogue. And when the Jews came back, the Jews again would be dispersed, the dispersia all throughout the known world at that time. And anywhere in a city where there was 10 Jewish males, then they would establish a synagogue. And there at the synagogue, and again, it was like church, you recall that as we recently went through the book of Acts, remember that Paul, when he, on his missionary journeys, went into a city, if there was a synagogue there, he would first go into the synagogue. And oftentimes he would be asked to speak because the synagogue was a, a place where they read a portion of the scripture, the Old Testament scripture, and then there was one of the elders that would interpret. And interesting enough, out of those interpretations, uh, the oral traditions and the interpretations of the synagogue worship at that time, the Talmud and the Mishnah came forth. So the main duties of the scribe um, and here's Ezra, a priest and a scribe, and it is believed by rabbinical scholars that Ezra was very uh, influential in establishing the synagogue worship that would come back as a practice. Um, remember that even though 50,000 came back with Zerubbabel, we're going to see only you know, a few thousand are going to come back with Ezra. The Jews were still living outside of Israel, most of them. A vast majority stayed in, in Persia. They stayed in the area of Babylon. And they're beginning to spread out uh, during the days of Jesus under the Roman occupation. The Jews were all over the known world. So it was very difficult for them to be able to make it to Jerusalem for any feast day because travel was expensive and travel was very dangerous. So the synagogue was established in very much an important part of their worship. So here is uh, Ezra. He's uh, a scribe. Um, he was influential in probably setting up the synagogue worship during the Babylonian captivity. And the three main duties of the scribe was, number one, to preserve the word of God. And they did an incredible, you know, uh, job of doing that. We today owe a great deal of gratitude to the scribes of the past who preserves God's word. Sometimes when we're sharing with people, people will say, oh, I don't believe the Bible. You can't trust the Bible because the Bible has been changed so much over time. And the question that you can ask them is, really? Has it been changed over time? Where's the evidence for that? Can you show me where it's been changed over time? Because as you look at it and look at it honestly, you see what an incredible thing it is that how the Word of God has been preserved 
over the centuries and because of the scribes in the great detail and dedication and being diligent in copying the scriptures. And I think that that is very evident, particularly as you look at, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in, in 1947 by a shepherd boy and, and those Dead Sea Scrolls um, that were found had a portion of scripture from every book of the Old Testament, but I believe except for Esther. And you recall that I, it was two years ago that we had a copy of the whole book of Isaiah that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. They found all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls dated 2,200 years ago, 200 B.C., 200 years before Jesus was born. And it was interesting because there's, you know, the original that they found from the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's locked up in the bottom of, you know, in the basement under, you know, control atmosphere and climate. So it doesn't decay. So you can't see the original. They're trying to keep it from turning black and, and you can touch it. And because it's 2,200 years old, it'll just kind of decay. But they were able to make a copy of it from photographs and they were, have three copies that are all uh, that there is of that whole scroll of the book of Isaiah. There is one in Jerusalem. If you go with us to Jerusalem, we'll go to the museum in Jerusalem, and they have that copy on display. All 66 chapters uh, of the book of Isaiah. And also there's a copy that is in the museum in London, the British Museum, and there is another copy that travels around, and we had it here two years ago. Some of you saw it, you recall? And it was wonderful. It was fascinating. We had some other you know, copies of some of the parchments that were found. And as you looked at the book of Isaiah, and it was interesting because you could pull up uh, an app on the iPad. People were coming in, and they can see a portion of it as they were looking at the, the scroll, and they could pull up what the translation is in English and you can compare it to what your Bible has to say, and it was very, very accurate. It was absolutely amazing and wonderful to see. This scroll, a copy of the original, that's 2,200 years old, 200 years before Jesus came on the scene. And in the book of Isaiah, any of you that read that book or studied that book, you know that there's prophecies in the book of Isaiah concerning Jesus' first coming, isn't it? That behold, a, 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 a woman shall conceive and, and a, a, a virgin shall conceive and, and bear a child and his name shall be called Emmanuel. That's in Isaiah chapter 7. And in Isaiah chapter 9 that he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God. And the government shall be on his shoulders. And in Isaiah chapter 53 and also sections of chapter 52 speaking of the suffering Messiah. So there's a lot of prophecies in there in detail talking about Jesus' virgin birth, speaking about how he would suffer, um, and it would be all written there, that scroll, that's 22, 200 years before Jesus came on the scene, that's not even the original. Isaiah would write about it 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. So you can look at it and you can see that what's in your Bible here was the same as what the scribes were writing 2,200 years ago. It's also, here's another little thing to think about. As Isaiah was receiving those prophecies about Jesus' first coming that were fulfilled to the letter, do you think that the prophecies that he had to say about Jesus' second coming? 
that we can be confident that they're going to be fulfilled? Of course we can. So the scribes were very, very careful in how they preserved the Word of God. And again, we um, are ones that we are very grateful for that. Second of all, they would teach the Word of God. That is, they would give the interpretation. And then thirdly, they would administrate the Word of God. That is, they would make application. As a pastor teacher, I want to be dedicated to giving you the Word of God, to teaching it to you, not only giving you the interpretation, but also making application for our lives. That's my prayer every time that I stand up here behind the pulpit, that Lord help me to teach the Word of God, to give proper interpretation of what the Word has to say, and also to make application. And if you leave here with that done, then I've done what God has called me to do to be able to teach and for you to receive application as well. So that's what he would do, Ezra, as he was describing. Verse 7, some of the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the Nethiam, came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. And on the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. In verse 10, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and the ordinances in Israel. So Ezra would take four months to travel from Babylon to Jerusalem. Again, it would be a very difficult journey. It would be a long journey. It would be through desert. Uh, it was very dangerous as they would make that uh, journey. Uh, also, I want to point out that as Ezra was there in Babylon, it says here that in verse 10, he prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. In other words, Ezra, when he was in Babylon, waiting to come to Jerusalem, he was preparing his heart. He was studying the word of God. He, he didn't just sit in Babylon and said, well, I guess I'll do nothing until, you know, God calls me to go to, to Judah, to Jerusalem. But he was preparing his heart, preparing his heart to seek the law of the Lord. And I do want to make application for us here tonight. Because maybe the Lord's put something on your heart. There's a desire on your heart, maybe a ministry, or that you have a desire that, Lord, will you do this in my life? Will you work in this way? And the thing is, as you are waiting on the Lord, and as you are, you know, thinking about the things that he's put on your heart, prepare your heart. Continue to seek the Lord. Continue to study the Word of God. Allow Him to continue to, to work in your life. And here was Ezra, that he wanted the Word of God to touch him, and he was teachable, preparing his heart so that he could teach it when he gets to Jerusalem, to be able to encourage the people, because Ezra here is going to be concerned about the spiritual condition of the people. And he's going to be teaching them the Word of God. And he's going to be making application. And he's going to be a spiritual leader, a great leader to Jerusalem here, particularly as we will see in chapters 9 and 10, that there was a problem that was there. But you see, Ezra wasn't just kicking back in Babylon saying, well, I'm not going to do anything. He was allowing the Lord to work in him and through him. And if maybe there's a ministry on your heart that you're thinking, Lord, you know, I got this desire, I want to do this, it's on my heart, you continue to allow the Lord to teach you and speak to you. Continue to prepare your heart for that. Maybe you're a young lady that wants to get married someday and, and, and you, that's your desire. You continue to seek the Lord. You continue to prepare your heart. 
Continue to let Him work in your life. Whatever it might mean for you. And allow the Lord to just teach you and and touch your heart and minister to you and continue to grow you. We know that the hand of the Lord was on him, it tells us, and six times it's going to say this concerning Ezra. And Ezra was used in a powerful, mighty way. It's a wonderful thing to know that the hand of the Lord is on you. It reminds me as I read this and we'll continue to see that the hand of the Lord was on Ezra. The hand of the Lord was on me is what Ezra says. He knew that the Lord was working. And as you follow the Lord and as you desire to please the Lord with your life, know this, the hand of the Lord is on you. And he desires to guide you and direct you and use you in such a wonderful way, whatever he might have for you, opportunities that he gives to you. But that's wonderful to know. It brings me comfort, just to, that phrase, the hand of the Lord, you know, guiding me and protecting me and strengthening me and, and keeping me, you know, uh, close to himself. And Ezra knew that the hand of the Lord was on him as well. So we see here that uh, here is Ezra as he prepared his heart to be, the ministry that God had for him. And now we're going to see that as Ezra is getting ready to come back, that this letter from the king Artaxerxes is going to come with Ezra, which would be very important. In verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra, the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and of his statutes to Israel. Verse 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings. Artaxerxes didn't know that he wasn't the king of kings. Only Jesus is the king of kings. But it was a title that he's the head honcho, you know. He's the king of uh, the Medes and the Persians. And to Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace and so forth, verse 13. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Verse 16, And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. So Ezra was given authority to take those who wanted to go with him to Jerusalem. And we're going to see, as you go into chapter 8, the heads of the families. There's about 1,500 of them that would go, but provision was given to him as he begins his journey. Gold and silver, along with the free will offering of the people and the priests. In verse 17, now therefore be careful uh, to uh, buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. 
And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issued a decree to all the treasures who are in the region beyond, treasurers that are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest and the scribe of the law of the God of heaven may require of you, let it be done diligently, up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, and 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. So here the money is given to Ezra um, that he was to spend here on the sacrificial animals and the promotion of temple worship. I don't think that Artaxerxes, and it's interesting that as you look at the Medo-Persian Empire, that you had Darius, you had Cyrus, you had Artaxerxes, even Xerxes, all of them showed favor towards the Jews. A lot different than under the Greek Empire or under the Roman Empire where, you know, the kings or the emperors didn't really show a whole lot of favor towards the Jews. But here, these decrees that God, you know, put these kings in place of the Medo-Persian Empire to allow the Jews to come back and be established in the land once again. But I don't think that Artaxerxes is necessarily one who believed in, you know, the Lord. I think that he respected and um, the Lord of Israel, the God of Israel. I think that he was one that uh, many uh, believe he was one that, you know, that worshiped many gods. And he didn't want to upset the, the Jews' God. He, he's, he's the God whose dwelling, verse 15, is in Jerusalem. They thought that each God had a dwelling, you know, this is his territory, Jerusalem and Judah and then other gods of other nations that he probably would worship. But in verse 21, I think that we can learn from his statement, and that is whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligently done. I hope that's said for us as Christians. That whatever the commandment of the Lord that we as believers, how much more we should take to heart, that we should say in our hearts that, Lord, I want to diligently do it. Whatever commandments and truths that we glean from God's word, that we would say, Lord, I want it to be a part of my life. I I want to do it diligently, not half-heartedly, not grungingly, not, you know, with reservation, but, Lord, Your commandments are good. Your word is true. And whatever you command me to do is I read that and I take that, that, Lord, that I would be diligent about doing it. So may that be said of us as he writes this letter, giving Ezra permission to go back to to Jerusalem. And we continue reading in verse 23, that whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, uh, let it be done diligently be done for the house of the God of heaven, for why should there be wrath against the reign of the king and his sons? So again, we see that is given to them as he writes that in his letter. And we know that Artaxerxes is one that um, is allowing them to be able to go back and, um, and to be able to, to return to where God wants them to be, back into the land. In verse 24, also we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nathiam, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as known the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them, Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him 
whether it be death or banishment or confiscation or goods or imprisonment. So here we know that Ezra was given legal power to enforce God's law and to enforce judgment, set up some judges, set up magistrates, have a legal system, and you can judge according to your law, according to the, the law of Moses. And Ezra was given that authority. That was really important. Now, it's interesting that they could execute those, it says, whether it be by death, and they could uh, have capital punishment. That was something that the Jews were able to keep at that time. Now, under the Roman rule, when Rome came in during the days of Jesus, they could not execute anyone. Capital punishment was taken away from them, right? So that's why the Jews would execute somebody by how? Well, the book of Moses uh, or the law of Moses said that they would be stoned to death. But Jesus was crucified, and the reason was is because the Jews, when the religious leaders took Jesus and they arrested him, they would condemn him to death, but they could not execute Jesus. So they took him to the Romans, and they would push Pilate that he needs to be put to death. And of course, crucifixion was a form of capital punishment under the Romans. But here at this time, they were able to, to execute those or, or capital punishment, imprison those according to the law of your God. So he's given that authority. In verse 27, Blessed be the Lord God of the fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. And so I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. So whatever journey that uh, he was on, he knew that God's hand was on him. He was encouraged because God was, you know, working. God was providing and, and he was given authority. He knew that the hand of the Lord was on him. It's wonderful when we are doing what God has called us to do and he's providing for us and he's working in a way that we can see that he's working. He's opening doors and, and he's, you know, uh, leading us in our journey in life. And it's wonderful to watch the Lord be able to do that. And one of the things that I've always said, you know, that God will guide you and he'll provide for you as he's leading you. And there are times where a door will be closed. He closes doors that no man can open and he opens doors that no man can shut. But the Lord has something for us. And as he is using you and as he is guiding you, you're going to see that guidance and provision that he's working in your life. And so you can be encouraged that the Lord desires to do that with you as well as he was doing with Ezra. So chapter 8, as we go into chapter 8, we see that in verses 1 through 14, here are the heads of the father's houses, and this is the genealogy, that those who went up with me from Babylon to the region of, uh, in the reign of King Artaxerxes, and the son of Phinehas, and all these names that are given there, all the way through verse 14. I am not going to read all of these names. You can read these names when you go to bed tonight before you fall asleep, and you can try to pronounce those beds. Husbands, maybe you can read it to your wives and uh, help her get to sleep tonight. I don't know. But <laughs> you can read these names. But these are the people who accompanied Ezra back to Jerusalem. Now keep in mind that the focus of Ezra is to restore the spiritual condition of the people. And again, just under 1,500 of the males are listed, which suggests that 
if the women and probably children came back, was more like five or 6,000 in totality that came back. Again, much less than that what was under Zerubbabel. But let's go to verse 15 of chapter 8. Now I gathered them by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped three day, there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. So we see here that Ezra embanks on this long journey. He, he stops and is near Ahava, and as he evaluates, he realizes that there's no Levites here. Now, you might recall that Zerubbabel kind of was faced with a similar situation, and that was, as we saw in chapter 2, that he only had a few Levites in that 50,000 that came in the first wave of return. So why weren't there any Levites here? Well, we don't know for sure. But probably improbable is the reason is because many of them were very comfortable back in Babylon. That's why most of the people stayed back. Probably two and a half, three million people stayed. Only a few thousand came back. Uh, 50,000 in the first wave. Another 6,000 with women and children here that came back. None of the Levites would come back. And here, Ezra has a concern. He's wanting the people to be spiritually strong. His priority, as we're going to see, was the spiritual condition of the people. He has the authority. He had the money. But he didn't have the spiritual leaders who would help. Now, remember the Levites that we've talked about them, particularly when we were in First Chronicles. Do you recall that David, as he was preparing for Solomon to build the temple, he got the Levites all in order. And, and the, he got the gatekeepers and, and the singers and, and um, those who would assist the priests. And he got the priests all in line. But the Levites did all manner of service, as we were told in First Chronicles chapter 23. And they did all manner of service. As we've talked about in our previous studies, they were the ones that kind of remind me of the deacons of the New Testament. The word deacon simply means a servant. The deacons who were commissioned in the book of Acts there in chapter 6 to serve tables, to serve the widows. They were the ones that rolled up their sleeves and, and did practical ministry. The word deacon simply means servant. I believe that the Lord desires for all of us to be servants. You see, you can have the provision that is monetarily. You can have the authority, but what it needs to go with that is the servants. We could not do the ministry that we do here at Calvary Chapel. I couldn't have the time to be able to be really focused on studying the Word of God and be able to give the Word of God if it wasn't for so many who roll up their sleeves and help out practically doing the ministry, doing service here, being servants, making sure that things are ready to go. You know, the church is clean, that um, getting things ready for the service. You know, the guys back in the sound booth that are helping out, and, and it's not an easy ministry that they have. You know, making sure that we got the CDs ready to go and, and things are in place so we can do the ministry. And I'm so appreciative of you who do the work of the ministry. And I know that many of you, you do service in, outside these four walls. You minister to your families. You minister perhaps in other ministries in town that God has called you to do. But it's such a privilege and a wonderful opportunity for us to be able to do the work of the Lord. 
Don't miss out on that, folks. Don't be where, you know what, I'm just only concerned about how comfortable I am. You see, the Lord wants us to be committed. You know, one of the things about when you are committed and you're doing the work of the Lord, you're going to be more committed to staying with a group of believers. We live in a day and age where we can kind of bounce around from church to church because we can just do that. I mean, there's a lot of churches here in Greeley. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong in that in and of itself. But the thing is, when you become committed and are serving in a particular ministry, you're going to stay committed to that ministry in that church. So what my hope and prayer is, is that whatever ministry, whatever church that God has you to go, and I, I know that for many of you it's here, that you would say, how is it that we can get involved? How is it that we can serve the Lord? And I know that maybe you're still praying about, Lord, I'm not sure what you want me to do. You keep praying. Allow the Lord to keep preparing your heart for that. Keep searching the Word of God, and He's going to, to speak to your heart. And He's going to give you a peace that rules in your heart concerning what it is that He would have you to do. Maybe some of you are still trying to figure out where you're supposed to be planted, and that's great. And, and you're kind of checking things out, and you're praying about it. But there comes a time that I hope that all of us will realize that I want to be committed to you, Lord, and I just want to please you in whatever you have for me. The Levites were lacking, and Ezra was concerned about that. How is it that we're going to do the work of the Lord if the Levites, those servers, aren't there? And I can understand a little bit of his heart because I think, how could we do the work of the ministry here if there aren't those who are committed to doing the work of the ministry and making, you know, things happen here to where we're doing the ministry for edification and, you know, for the body of Christ. So it's wonderful to be used of the Lord. So here is Ezra. He's concerned about that. And as, as we continue reading in the rest of the chapter, what we'll see is he's going to do some recruiting. Verse 16, and I sent for Eleazar, Ariel, and these guys that are, are listed there, men of understanding. And I gave, verse 17, them a command for Ido, the chief man of the place of uh, Che uh, Safara. Um, and I told them that they should say to Ido and his brethren, uh, the Nethium at the place of Casaphia, and that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. And verse 18, then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding, the sons of Malai, the son of Levi, the son of Israel, namely Sherebiah and his sons and brothers, 18 men. So we see here that what happens is Ezra addresses the problems. He recruits were, um, for some Levites. Sherebiah, who responded to the call, and he leads a delegation of men to come with Ezra, a delegation of Levites to come with Ezra. In verse 21, And then I proclaimed the fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request of the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him, but his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. 
So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. So Ezra prayed for protection on their journey. He didn't want to ask for soldiers, but he's just trusting in the Lord that the Lord's going to protect us. You know, David, he had that same mindset. He would say in Psalm 20 that some trust in horses and chariots, but we're going to call in the name of the Lord. And whatever it is that God is having us to do, that we can trust him for his protection and that he's going to see us through and he's going to finish that work and get us to where we need to be, where he wants us to be. And, and so uh, God honored them as they prayed and they fasted. And I like that because what we see here with Ezra, he was a man of prayer. Verse 23, we fasted, we entreated our God for this and he answered our prayer. What is so very important as we do desire to be used of the Lord, as we desire to live a life pleasing to him, and prayer and fasting is going to be a part of that, isn't it? And I think that it should be a part of, of any ministry as well. One of the things that the Lord's laid on my heart, and I was talking to the guys about it this week, uh, even before I was even looking at it, this text here, is what I would like to do in the next month is just for us as a church have a week of fasting and praying where we ready really dedicate that week to fasting and praying now you might be thinking I gotta fast for a whole week no that's not what I'm saying but whatever you know the Lord puts on your heart you know maybe fasting for a day maybe for a meal or during the week you know you're gonna give up your Snickers bars or your Starbucks coffee whatever it might be you see what I mean but for us as a church to really just seek the Lord, to come together for a week and really focus on that. We spend a lot of time in the Word of God and going through the Word of God. That's a wonderful thing. But also I think it's good for us to stop and just to seek you, Lord, to seek you as a church. Because I really believe that God wants to do so much with this church. He is doing a lot. But I think he's just beginning. And it's going to start as we humble ourselves before God and as a church family, as we're committed, you know, to the ministry here to say, Lord, what is it that you would have us to do? What is it that you're going to put on our heart? Lord, we just, we just come before you. And then lifting up the needs of the people and praying for people and seeing God work in a powerful way. So I'd like to do that. So look for announcements on that later. So just a week of prayer and fasting, I think it would be a wonderful time for us to be able to do that. But let's finish tonight as we go into verse 24 here. That, and I separated 12 of the leaders of the priests, Sherebiah and Hashabiah, and the 10 of their brethren with them. And the way out to them, the silver, the gold, the articles of the offerings of the house of our God, which the king and his counselors and his princes and all Israel who were present had offered. Verse 26, I weighed into their hands 650 talents of silver, silver articles weighing 100 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 gold basins worth a thousand dacrum, uh, mess, and two vessels of fine polished bronze, precious as gold. And I said to them, you are holy to the Lord. The articles are holy also, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your fathers. Watch and keep them until you weigh them before the leaders of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses of Israel in Jerusalem in the chambers of the house of the Lord. So the priests and the Levites received the silver and the gold and the articles by weight to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. So Ezra, what he does is 
he divides the valuables among the leaders of the priests to make sure that it arrives in Jerusalem safely. Ezra says, you're responsible for these treasures to deliver them to Jerusalem. Here's something for us to, to always understand. Not only are we servants of the Lord, but in that being a servant, we are also told that we are stewards of the treasures of God. Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. You know, a steward was one that was entrusted to take care of the master's goods. And so the master, when he asked for one of the goods to the steward, the steward knew exactly where to go and get it and bring it for the master. A steward was one to be faithful. In other words, not only faithful in doing what the master tells him to do, but being able to locate and get that that the master is asking for. We're called to be stewards. In other words, there is a treasure house of the Lord that when he speaks to your heart and says, I want you to do this, I need this from you, Maybe it might be perhaps as you're ministering to somebody, are we able to take the, the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge, the word of God, and be able to pull out from that to be able to minister to others? Or maybe that the Lord desires for you to have that compassion and that mercy to be able to minister to somebody or to be able to share with them the love of the gospel, to be able to go to the storehouse of God's truth and his treasures to be a good and faithful steward because we've been given the responsibility of being stewards of the mysteries of God. That is the thing of God, the things of God to be able to minister to others, to be faithful in doing that. Great opportunities to give to people the things of God, the love of God, and the word of God. Also, it kind of reminds me here that as they were given these things to be good stewards of them, <coughs> you know, we're to be good stewards of what God has given and blessed us with. Remember Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, if you can't be trusted with unrighteous manna, how will you be entrusted with true or spiritual heavenly manna? And that's something that whatever God has given to us to be a good steward, to be able to be a good steward, to pull out the things of the Lord, to minister to others. And so all the the things that, that we can look at and, and realize that, that God has given us great opportunity to minister to others and be a good steward of what he's given to us to bless others. In verse 31, And then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day and on the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy from ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem and stayed there three days. So God did protect them from the bandits and the robbers because the hand of the Lord was upon us. And after four months again coming to Jerusalem, and then as we finish, verse 32, so we came to Jerusalem, stayed there thir three days. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. And with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. With them were the Levites, uh, Josabad, the son of Joshua and Noadiah, the son of Ben-Nuai. And with the number and the weight of everything, all the weight was written down at that time. Verse 35, the children of those who had been carried away captive 
who had come from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, 12 bulls for all Israel, 96 rams, 77 lambs, and 12 male goats as a sin offering. And all this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's say straps and to the governors in the region beyond the river. So they gave support to the people in the house of God. I want to finish with this. They get to Jerusalem. The wealth is counted. All is there. All is there. They were good stewards and responsible. What was given to them was delivered to Jerusalem. You know, we will give an account of what we did with what God gave us. Not just in money, but in our service and devotion to Him. Opportunities to serve Him. So were we, were we good stewards of it, or did we just bury it? You know, our sins have been paid for. The Bible says that we will stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, not to be judged for our sins. Jesus took our sins upon himself on Calvary's cross. But we are going to be judged our works to receive rewards, what we have done in the body, whether good or bad, Paul goes on to explain. The Bema reward seat of Christ, the Corinthians knew exactly what that was. They knew that in the ancient Olympic games that they would stand at the Bema reward seat to receive rewards for the event that they participated in, much like what we just saw in the last couple weeks in the Winter Games. The winners of those events stood on the platform and they received rewards. You and I will be able to do that as well. We're going to give an account for what we have done in this life. And the thing is, what I hope and pray for every single one of us that we would be rich towards the Lord. And the priority is, I want to be a good steward, Lord, of what you've given to me, and a good steward to be able to minister to others. I want to be faithful to you, Lord. And Lord, I want to be able to take those opportunities that you give to me and to please you as you lead me and as you guide me. There are heavenly rewards that are waiting for us. And what we do for Christ, that is what's going to last for all eternity. Everything else here is going to burn away. So may we keep a heavenly, eternal perspective on life. And may we store up our treasures in heaven and seek first the kingdom of God in His righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto us. But know this, that the Lord desires to reward us for the things that we have done in this life for Him. So may we be faithful, may we be wise, and know that the hand of the Lord is upon us as well. So Father, we thank You. We thank You for these two chapters in Ezra. and He was ministering here during a very difficult time and during a time that it wasn't easy at all. But Lord... We see a man who was dedicated to you and trusted in you. And Lord, that a man that was concerned for the spiritual condition of the people. Father, in our lives here, I first of all pray that 
that all of us have a relationship with Jesus by faith. And I pray if anybody is listening to this message or watching or that are here in this sanctuary, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, it is by faith alone. You can't work for it. Salvation is a free gift. Jesus did the work on Calvary's cross. And he went to the cross and died for your sins because all of us are sinners. And our sin has a sentence of death, spiritual death, that has been pronounced by God. We've fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, what the book of Romans says. But as we come to the one who died for us and surrender our lives to him and believe in him, that he took all of your sins upon himself and he was put into a grave and he rose again, then we have eternal life that is promised to us who believe in him and on his name. He is your only salvation. There is none other. It isn't by being religious. No one else died for you and rose from the grave. No other religious leader, no other person. Only Jesus. Only Jesus provided salvation. He is your salvation. Is he your salvation personally? Is he your Lord and Savior personally? And if he isn't, I pray that you would call out to him. Because whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And you can pray, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God who died for me. And I now surrender my life to you. Forgive me, a sinner. I believe you died on Calvary's cross for my sins and you were put into a grave and you rose again. And I surrender my life to you right now. Be my personal Lord and Savior. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. And for us that we are believers, he's given us eternal life. May we be faithful to the things that he's given to us, the life he's given to us, the opportunities to serve. May we be good stewards and servants for you, Lord, not just concerned about how comfortable we are, but we want to be committed. We want to be committed to you, Lord, and where you would have us and how you would use us and whatever that might mean, knowing that it's going to be glorious and it pleases you. And Lord, that it honors you when we do that. We were created for your good pleasures, is what the Bible says. Not just to live our own lives and go our own direction and make our own decisions. But the commandment of the Lord that is given to us, may we do it diligently. And Lord, may we really seek you, desire to hear from you. Lord, enable us and encourage us because perhaps some of us are feeling down and discouraged, Lord, in where we're at and what we're facing, knowing that you're working and you're going to complete that work in us. And Father, I pray that we would leave this place encouraged but committed to you more than ever. 
Father, I thank you for this time that we've had. I look forward to us gathering in the days ahead. And, but Lord, I do pray for us as a church that not only would we be ones that were committed to the Word of God, but also to you and seeking you, knowing that you desire to use us to work through us in a wonderful way, to reach this community, to reach the people that are linked to us in our lives, our families, co-workers, whatever, because the time is short, and you're coming back soon. It's not a time to play games. It's not a time to get distracted or become sleepy and lethargic spiritually, but Lord, to really engage because you're looking for those who will serve you and be faithful to you. Your eyes go to and fro across the whole earth, showing, desiring to show yourself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal towards you. So may we have loyal hearts. Lord, I pray you would bless everyone here as we go our way here tonight. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen.